You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Amen. Uh, If you're able to grab your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis Chapter 47, remain standing if you're able for the reading of God's word. This is our sermon text this morning. It's hard to believe we're in Genesis 47. Some of you thought this would never happen. Just kidding. Nobody said that. Maybe I thought that. Genesis 47. Let's quiet our hearts before God's word now. May he speak to us the words of life. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Verse 7, then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him up before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojournings are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojournings. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Verse 13, now there was no food in all the land for the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they had bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Verse 15, and when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, the, the, flocks, of the, her, the flocks, the herds and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. Verse 18, and when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of the livestock are my Lord's. 
There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph, verse 20, brought, bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth the land of the priest not alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Joseph lived, verse 28, lived in the land of Egypt 17, or rather Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This is God's word. Please be seated. We are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis this morning. And as we have read, we come to chapter 47 in this great history of salvation. Last week, we learned that God granted Jacob assurance and granted Jacob ultimately permission, divine permission to move God's people from Canaan to Egypt. And that's exactly what transpired. 70 persons in all made the 200 mile journey from Canaan down to Egypt. And after 22 long years of being separated from his son, Jacob and Joseph are reunited again. And their, their reunion is, is tender, it is special. Their two uh, caravans show up there in Goshen. Joseph is riding his royal vizier chariot with his servants trotting alongside his chariot while Jacob rolls up with his 70 in his household with borrowed wagons. But as soon as Joseph descends from his royal chariot, he falls upon his father's neck and he weeps for a long time. 
22 years of thinking, I will never see my father. And the father thinking, I will never see my son, comes to an end and Joseph and Jacob are reunited. Now at this point, Joseph had received a verbal agreement from Pharaoh that he could indeed relocate his family from Canaan to Egypt. He got a verbal agreement. But now Joseph needs an official clearance from the Pharaoh. He needs a granting from the Pharaoh. And that's exactly what he pursues in this first scene in chapter 47. If you're a note taker, we have three scenes that will unfold for us this morning. And I've titled this first scene, State Issued Clearance. After Pharaoh confirms that the, sh- that the brothers are shepherds by trade, just as Joseph thought he would, Pharaoh continues in verse 5. This is official language. Look at verse 5 again briefly. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my flock. Now that's unexpected. Not only did they receive an official clearance to settle in the land of Goshen, which is a pasture land in Egypt, but also they get a job offer from the king. Pharaoh says, if you know any able-bodied men among your clan, I've got some livestock. I've got a job waiting for you. So not only do they have housing, but they have employment. So it's best case scenario. Clearly now, the entire family is benefiting from the trust and the relationship with Pharaoh that God has granted Joseph. Everyone's benefiting from this special relationship between Pharaoh and Joseph. Pharaoh, of course, is happy to accommodate the family of the man that has saved his entire country from a global famine. And so, yes, come into Goshen. Take the best of the land. I have employment for you. And in this official setting, what happens next is a bit unexpected. We've been accustomed to these sort of unexpected surprises in the Genesis narrative. Listen or look at verses 7 and following again. Notice this sort of unexpected twist in this official setting. Verse 7, then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father. Picture a frail, frail old man. He brought him in and he stood him up. So Jacob's passive. He has to be stood up. Stood up before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojournings are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in their sojournings. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. After the official state clearance that these Hebrew men and women can settle in the land of Goshen, there is this very unusual, even 
casual interaction between Jacob, the patriarch, and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Jacob is 130 years old. He's 130. To be 110 would have been legendary in Egypt. And so naturally, Pharaoh's curious. He's impressed at the longevity of Jacob's life. And he seems impressed with Jacob. But what I love about this scene is how unimpressed Jacob is, both with the Pharaoh and himself. Jacob is unimpressed with the Pharaoh and all of this sort of royal palace pomp. And and I really love this about older generations. They're just unimpressed by a lot. The memory is not too clear, so I'm not the general truth. I remember being at a a celebrity golf tournament with my grandfather. And um, there were celebrities playing golf. Michael Jordan was there. I froze when I saw him. You know, um, and I remember saying, you know, I'm with grandpa and he's got all this access to these celebrities and, and uh, I go, grandpa, that's so-and-so. And I forget who the celebrity was, Kevin Costner. That's Kevin Costner. And my grandpa's like, so what? <laughs> who cares? But I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's so-and-so. I don't care. <laughs> I just don't care. At this stage in life, I don't care. And that's kind of what we get from Jacob at 130 before Pharaoh. That's Pharaoh. And (laughs) he's had theophanies, Jacob has, before the living God. Who's Pharaoh? In fact, Jacob, we, we notice gratitude, certainly, from Jacob. He blesses him twice. Notice Jacob doesn't receive a blessing from Pharaoh. Jacob hurries up and blesses Pharaoh. Jacob is well aware of Pharaoh's generosity and the kindness that he's shown his family. But again, there's no pandering. There's no sense that Jacob is overwhelmed by the grandeur of Pharaoh's Egyptian palace. I've seen gold rust. I've seen moths eat. At 130, I've seen thieves steal. This won't last. Jacob's not really impressed with Pharaoh, but Jacob is also not very impressed with himself. Notice in verse 9, he says this, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. What a summary. What an autobiography. Few and evil have been the days of this 130-year-old man. At 130 years old, Jacob is the third of the three main patriarchs in in Hebrew history. Jacob is finishing his life unimpressed with himself. In a lot of ways, his life has been tragic. If you've been walking through Genesis with us, it has been tragic. From the swindling of his brother's birthright and blessing... As another writes, remember his flight to Mesopotamia. Remember the sexual abuse of his daughter Dinah on his watch. Remember Rachel, his beloved, his favorite wife, her death at the birth of Benjamin. Tragic. 
And he is now disabled, so much so that he has to be propped up before Pharaoh. And so Jacob says to Pharaoh, my life has been short and hard. Pharaoh must have been shocked by this patriarch's comments. Surely he's used to heads of states and patriarchs and kings and presidents before him boasting in their flesh, boasting of all of their accomplishments, boasting of their livestock, their herds, their land, their people, and he gets no such boasting from Jacob. He gets a humbled man. My life has been short and hard. We'll revisit this remarkable scene at the end of our time this morning, but suffice it to say, Pharaoh grants state clearance to Joseph's family and Jacob the patriarch, and they're invited officially to settle in the land of Goshen. We'll come back again to this scene towards the end, but this granting from Pharaoh could not have come at a better time because there's about to be a second wave, a major wave of the famine that is gonna cause great devastation in Egypt and in all of the land. And so our second scene this morning is the famine increases or a second wave of the famine hits Egypt. Look at verse 13. Now there was no food in the land for the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. Now by now, in the 21st century, 2022, we are aware of waves of things, are we? Like how many times we like, another wave of COVID is hitting. Like the, even just me mentioning that just brings all kind of like anxiety. Like, oh, are, you, are you saying that now or is this part of the sermon? Um, we're used to waves of, of famine. Um, ours, of course, is a global pandemic. We're familiar also, aren't we, with the economic consequences and fallout from global uncertainty. Like, I've never talked about supply chain more in my life. Like we're, we live on the coast here, so we, we've got to see those, those vessels, those supply vessels in line for like weeks at a time. And you're just, you're just wondering. I remember it took me a long time to be like, do they always do that? Do they always stay in line this long? Well, by now, all of us are, are aware now, aren't we, of the waves of pandemics and the fallout, the economic consequences, the supply chain consequences of global unrest. Well, the same was true of this severe famine in the ancient Egypt. The famine would come in waves. And the global uncertainty and the suffering would lead to economic consequences that in some cases would impact economic policy for generations. While Joseph's family is nicely snuggled into their new home in Goshen, they are about to see their little brother spring into mode. I love, me and Malia talk about this all the time, we love seeing people in their vocational element, particularly if they've been doing it a long time. Because you know them as friends, you know, and they're just, oh, you know, it's really casual. But when you see them in mode, when you see them in their vocational calling and they snap into gear, it's just so 
interesting and impressive. I'll never forget this. I'm going to embarrass Lindsay this one time. Sorry. Um, I remember, so she's a nurse at Chalk. And I remember, you know, Lindsay, sweet, nice, quiet, humble, hospitable. She's a deacon of our hospitality team. And she's, she's out there, but she's on the phone and she's talking like a general on the phone. No, I said 50 cc's of this and that and this and that and this and that. And she's going down this order from somebody back at work. And I just remember going, wow, what is that? Where did that come from? And she's like, oh, you have to be really clear and really official because people's lives are on the line when you're a nurse. And I just love that. I love seeing people in their vocational capacity. And here, Joseph's family are seeing Joseph now for the first time in his vocational capacity. He springs into mode, and the gifts that God has given him are fully utilized. Everyone in Egypt, the text says, ran out of money to buy food. I mean, we just read that, but it is, this is dire consequences. The circulation, money circulation is gone. There is no more money. There is still food, Thanks to Joseph's wisdom, God-given wisdom to fill the storehouses, there is still food, but there's no more money in circulation. And in response to the lack of money in circulation, Joseph quickly monetizes livestock. He gives animals value, trade value. Okay, you don't have money in circulation. Pharaoh's got all of that now. Now he's going to monetize animals. And as far as we know, this is the first time this has happened in Egyptian history. He monetizes the animals, meaning he's allowing animals to be traded in exchange for food and resources. And all of this worked well for a time. But unfortunately, the famine continued to ravage the land for another year. And soon, even the animals all dried up. Pharaoh not only had all of the money from circulation in his coffers, but now he's got all of the livestock and the herds of animals from the Egyptians. Another wave of fear and uncertainty hit the land in Egypt. You and I know what that feels like. Wait, this this is impacting money. Now it's impacting animals. Look at verse 18 and following. And when the year was ended, they came to him, that is the people of Egypt, came to Joseph the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should, verse 19, why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, our land, buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. Verse 20, so Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, verse 21, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to another. I mean, desperate times. The food is gone from among the people. Their money is spent. Their livestock is property of the state. 
And now their lives and their land belong to Pharaoh as well. Oh, it's hard for us, isn't it, not to read our own Western ideas about slavery into this text about slavery. But this is different. This is a different form of slavery than the form of slavery that took place between the 14th and the 19th century when America and other developing countries imprisoned enslaved Africans for the sake of cheap labor. That was a, a horrendous sin upon humanity. This is different than that. As Gordon Winham writes in his commentary, he says, ancient slavery, like we just read here, ancient slavery at its best was like tenured employment. Whereas the free man was more like someone who is self-employed. The latter, the free man, was freer for sure, but he faced more risks. In other words, ancient slavery, like we see in this text and in most, if not all, of the slavery references throughout the Bible, ancient slavery oftentimes existed to pay off debts and was a generous extension, a good extension to those who could not pay for goods and services any other way. And that's what's happening in the text before us. In fact, the people are pleased. They like this plan. Please, let us not die. We will serve. We will work for economic assistance. And so Joseph agrees to acquire their land, and he acquires them as servants from one part of Egypt all the way through to the other side. But not only, as we close this point, not only did Joseph acquire all of the land and all of the people, but he also instituted a tax on the income. So for all of the crops that were going to be grown now on federal land, Joseph enacted a 20% tax upon the people. And this, of course, was to ensure Egyptian solvency so that they could still have resources in the coffers as the famine raged on. 20% tax. It's interesting. I was just curious. I was curious what the average income tax in America is today, and it's 22%. Now, that may not be your tax bracket, but that is the average tax bracket is 22%. We know from Egyptian, ancient Egyptian history, that this was probably the lowest tax that Egypt has ever had. There are moments in Egyptian history when the tax, the income tax, reached all the way up to 75%. 75% of crop earnings would go back to Pharaoh and the state. Now, let me just be really clear here. I do not think that this section in Genesis is a prescription for civil government. I do not think that we take this text to mean that God is for economic slavery and God is for the deprivatization of land. I don't think that's what's going on here. This is not a prescription for civil economies or civil government, but this is a description of how God, through Joseph, preserved the Egyptians and ultimately preserved his people in the land and kept them well through a severe famine. But one thing this history does underscore for us is something that we all share in common, and especially since 2020. And that is the uncertainty 
that befalls all of human life since the fall in Genesis 3. Prior to 2020, there was 40 to 50 years of unprecedented peace and prosperity in the West. And those that are my age and younger, we got lulled by that. We thought that was the rule, but that was the exception. And so all of us, some of us still to this day are, are riddled and dealing with anxiety because we don't have bearings on how to deal with uncertainty, global shortages, global famines, global pandemics. But what we experienced in 2020, beloved, is not the exception. It was the rule. It's been the rule for 6,000 years. There has been famine. There has been global uncertainty. And we're just now getting our hearts and minds around what it means to live in a world where we don't know what tomorrow holds. And we're constantly, aren't we, trying to feed our souls, soothe our souls, soothe our consciences, help us to sleep. What do we do? We're doing breathing exercises now for the first time. We're learning what it means to live behind enemy lines, behind a world that is sick with sin. And so this text draws out a parallel in our experience like no other, whether it is a global famine in the ancient East or a global pandemic today, whether it is the invasion of the Assyrian army into Israel or it's the invasion of Russia into Ukraine, whether it's the global supply chain that we just read about in ancient Egypt or the global supply chain issues in the 21st century West, West, constant uncertainty has been the norm since we rebelled against God in Genesis 3. And institutions and governments for 6,000 years have been trying to restrain this decay. Some have done better than others. But despite our best efforts, the best forms of government, the best rulers and presidents we've had, we continue to devolve as a humanity. No solutions to the unraveling of human society have come to pass. That's saying something. But there is profoundly good news for the Christian, which is why I hope you are here this morning. There is profound hope for the Christian because there is a way to view the world that will not eliminate suffering and anxiety, but gives meaning and purpose to all of it. See, beloved, we will not have peace. You will not release yourself from anxiety and despair by trying to relieve the suffering through all human means but you will to some degree lessen those despairing moments and those anxieties of uncertainty, not by trying to escape it, but how to view it and to find purpose in it. What's happening here beyond this moment? What we need is not escape from suffering. We need a worldview for suffering. We cannot escape uncertainty. We need a worldview for uncertainty. And that will not keep us from pain but that will keep us from despair. And the Bible gives us a worldview, a way to view the shifting sands of human life. 
And so this leads us now to our final point this morning. I've entitled this final point, Life as Sojourning. Life as Sojourning. Jacob comes to the end of his life. He came into Egypt at 130 years old, and he is leaving Egypt at 147. Interesting, 17 years he gets in Egypt with his boy. That's how old Joseph was, 17 years old, when he was first sold into slavery. So he got 17 years with his boy in Canaan, and he gets 17 years with his boy in Egypt. And Joseph comes to the end of his life, and notice he becomes stubborn at the end of his life. Another thing I love about older generations is, I mean, some stubbornness I love. This kind of stubbornness I love. He's insistent on not being buried in Egypt. But instead, he wants to be buried with his fathers in Canaan. In fact, he's so insistent, so stubborn, that he makes Joseph swear to him twice that J Joseph will bury him in Canaan. Swear to me, swear to me. Look at verses 29 to the end as we close. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. This was a Hebraic way to, to get so near and so close, more than a handshake, more than I promise, but promise me upon the loins of my life that you will do this. Do not bury me in Egypt. Verse 30, but let me lie with my father's. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. Verse 31, and he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself on the head of his bed. Now, I don't know what that was, if that was just exhaustion, you know, just like, oh, or if it was worship. He was satisfied that Joseph was going to bury him in Canaan, but he rests, he bows on the head of his bed. And the question for all of us this morning is why is Jacob so adamant that he is to be buried in Canaan? Why? And the answer is simple. Canaan represents faith in God. Canaan represents faith in God. Canaan was the land promised to Abraham and Isaac. Remember, I will give you a land. I will give you a land. I will make you a people. I'll give you a land and a people. More than the stars of the heavens, I will give you this land. It was promised to Abraham. It was promised to Isaac. And it was promised to Jacob Canaan represents faith in God. Now, what is faith? This is a word that has gotten so bizarre this, today. Faith, according to Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things, what? Not seen. 
Canaan represents hope in something not seen. Canaan was the promised land not because it is the final resting place for the bones of the patriarchs. No, Canaan was the promised land because it represented ultimate hope in something they couldn't yet see. Canaan represented ultimate trust in a God who promised to rescue his people. Canaan represents that feeling of trust in God when Abraham left his tent not knowing where he was going to go. Canaan represents rescue from God even though we can't see it and touch it. And so when Jacob before Pharaoh says something, when he's before, now switch back to our previous scene, verses seven through nine. When Jacob is before Pharaoh, remember in this sort of casual, clumsy interaction between Pharaoh and Jacob, Jacob says something to Pharaoh that is incredibly intentional when Pharaoh is questioning about his age. Look at verse seven again. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, verse eight, Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? Verse nine, and Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Pharaoh asked for the years of his life. Jacob gave him the years of his sojourning. Now, it would make perfect sense if Jacob merely counted his days or his years outside of Canaan as the years of sojourning. Like these are the years where we sort of fumbled around and we were looking for our home. These are the years, but not the years of Canaan. Those are the years of promised land, but Jacob doesn't do that. He equates all of his 130 years of life all as sojourning. He viewed his life as sojourning. For Jacob then at the end of his life, he considered all that he was, all that accumulated in his life as a pilgrimage. What is a sojourner? A sojourner, I looked it up. A sojourner is someone who resides temporarily in a space. Someone who is on their way home and is just staying in a certain location for a time. A sojourner is just passing through. So Jacob says to the Pharaoh, I'm a pilgrim on my way home. This would have been baffling for the Egyptian king who was trying, Pharaoh, to build heaven on earth with all of its glory this would have been baffling to Pharaoh, but is it baffling to us? That's the question. That's, that is the question. One of the reasons we are so riddled with anxiety today is that we have forgotten that we are sojourners. 
And we have fallen in love with this world. We've fallen in love with it. We've loved its comforts. We've loved its securities. And we have forgotten that we are not home. And so when those comforts and securities begin to erode, either from personal suffering or global uncertainty, we are rocked. But for the Christian, that's not necessarily bad news because it reminds us of our ultimate identity as sojourners. What are the days of the years of your life? 37 years a sojourner. 22 years a sojourner, 48 years a sojourner, 58 years a sojourner. I am a pilgrim. I am on my way home. We may be planting trees, but our home is in heaven. How do you think of your life this morning? I wonder how much of our shared anxiety is that we have forgotten that we are pilgrims. Beloved saints of God, here's the question. What has Christ with his own blood ransomed us to? This? Here? Is this the reward of Christ's blood? No. This is not the reward of Christ's blood. Peter says we are, because of Christ's shed blood, we are exiles. Refugees, ransomed pilgrims passing through on our way to eternal glory and bliss with the Father forever. In his writing on heaven, Richard Baxter, another 16th, 17th century Puritan, His writing for heaven, Richard Baxter, for me, has introduced me and has nourished me into homeward looking. Homeward looking, heaven looking. New creation, new heavens, new earth, like no other. And this is what Baxter says to all Christians. He says to all of us, fetch one coal daily from this heavenly altar. Fetch one coal daily from this heavenly altar and see if your offering will not burn within you. Light your lamp at this heavenly flame and feed it daily with oil from hence and see if it will not gloriously shine in you. Keep close to this reviving fire, this heavenly fire, and see if your affections will not be warmed by it. If you want to love God, lift up your eye of faith to heaven. Behold his beauty, contemplate his excellencies, and see whether perfect goodness will not ravish your heart. As exercise gives appetite, strength, and vigor to your body, so these heavenly exercises will quickly cause the increase of grace and spiritual life. Let's be a people that takes one of those coals from heaven's altar and daily put it next to our heart. 
to warm our affections for that true home, that city that has no end, whose builder and maker is God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would allow us in your kind mercy to view our lives as sojourning. Would you give us a worldview that with the author of Hebrews and those that have gone before us, that we would desire a better country, a heavenly one, where God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Make us a city that points to that city. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.